Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join join us Inside Inside the the Morgue. Welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. If you're from the Philly area like us, then you must have heard of this show at one point. Today, we're dissecting Body of Proof. We're analyzing Season 1, Episode 4, titled Talking Heads. And for those of you that don't know, Dr. Megan Hunt was a brilliant neurosurgeon at the top of her game until a devastating car accident ended her time in the operating room. But rather than end her medical career, she became a medical examiner for Philadelphia County. She develops a reputation for graying the line of where her job ends and the police's job begins. The opening scene starts out with Dr. Megan Hunt dropping her daughter Lacey off at the library. Lacey asks her mom if she would be able to shadow her at the medical examiner's office for a school project so she can learn what her mom does and how she contributes to society. Lacey chose her mom's job over her dad's job because she has a way cooler one, and I gotta agree. I was just gonna say, like, (laughs) I think we have the coolest jobs in the world. I don't know what the dad does, but medical examiner beats anything. Working in a morgue, coolest job in the world. Hunt hesitates since Lacey would have to film her at work. But Lacey insists and says she'll be in tomorrow to follow her around for the day. Hunt is then called to a scene. A homeless man had stumbled upon a buried body that had its fingertips and the foot sticking out of the dirt. So, first, red flag. I'm not sure how other offices and other counties work, but in our office, even though we are under a coroner system, the doctors are not the ones to go to scenes. That's the job of the death investigator and the crime scene unit and anyone else who needs to go but doctors are not the ones to go to scenes yeah i don't i think it's like very rarely would they ever be yeah. at the scene only if they're desperately yeah. needed to determine something yeah but right away the first one responding they're not going to be the ones the detective at the scene explains to hunt that a homeless man found the remains and now that hunt is there they can start digging the remains out she tells the unit to pause their digging she examines the hand sticking out of the dirt and gently pulls it out it's a severed hand cut at what appears to be mid-radius and ulna peter dunlap the medical legal death investigator then goes to pull the foot out of the dirt and it comes out just as easily as the hand did this foot is cut at mid-tibia and fibula The victim has been dismembered, and Dunlap tells the team they need to excavate the entire area. Hunt is back at the morgue, carrying a container of dismembered parts in it. Kate Murphy, the chief medical examiner, says that the mayor wants to know if this is one body that's dismembered or multiple bodies dismembered. In the autopsy seat, we see our first green flag. They have this giant, really cool, rolling see-through whiteboard with a body diagram on it and a section for organ weights. And we've said this before on, on our podcast, but we always use whiteboards to write down all the notes from the autopsy and to document all of the organ weights. I need to figure out where I can buy that board because it was very cool. I want a cool board like there's the sliding one it was so cool i was watching it with my parents and my boyfriend because we were visiting my parents this weekend and i was like i want one of those that's so cool murphy starts writing on the whiteboard while hunt x-rays the body parts another green flag hunt is using a portable x-ray gun to fluoroscope the parts and in our morgue we don't exactly have a portable one we have a cr machine which is exactly how it sounds it looks like a giant c and it rotates so you can shoot anterior posteriorly or laterally but alice and i have both worked with an x-ray 
gun when our odontologist comes in to do dental exams for bodies. He has one of them and he takes dental shots with it for the victims to ID them by like age estimation or a dental comparison. Back to the show. We see them taking swabs to send for talks, and we see them looking at histology slides on the microscope. They run through what they have so far with the investigators. Only 5% of the population is AB positive blood type. Both the hand and the foot exhibit signs of severe rheumatoid arthritis, so they conclude that they're dealing with one victim and not multiple. This victim is a male, Caucasian, and most likely in his 50s. There are fractures on the foot seen on x-ray, so something heavy had to have dropped on the foot a few years ago because this is an old fracture they're seeing. All five metatarsals were broken in a straight line, and everything below that line was crushed, and everything above the line was unaffected. They say that this is the type of injury seen by someone wearing steel-toed boots. So the man most likely walks with a limp. There are also spot scars on the knuckles of the hand, and this is consistent with metal spatter. So they also think that the man was a welder, based on this finding, and he was working in construction, but they think that because of the arthritis, that was impairing him. So many longtime welders develop arc burns from the UV radiation coming from the electric arc welding, which can cause severe sensitivity to light over time, so they also theorize that this man probably wore sunglasses often. Got a lot of information. From not from a lot of like body two parts. parts. Yeah, damn. <laughs> Hunt shines a blue light on the back of the hand and an image appears. It's a circle with a paladin inside. This stamp is from a local casino. The team goes to the casino to look at the security surveillance footage. A worker there says they used that exact stamp on Mondays, so he shows them the footage from that Monday. We see a white man wearing sunglasses and walking with a cane. That's the victim. His name is Cal, but no one at the casino knows his last name. But Cal was seen with a woman on the video, and the team obviously becomes suspicious of her. So the woman is found and interviewed by the detective, and the woman said that Cal wanted to leave before he spent any more of his winnings. But she tried to talk him back into the casino, but he ended up getting into a man's car, and that was the last that she saw of him that night. She said the car was a black sports car and that the guy had a very strong grip on Cal's arm. That man was last seen on Monday and was found on Saturday. Back at the morgue, some of the techs are working on the dismembered foot still, and they notice a strange substance under the big toenail. It could be pus from a bacterial infection, but there's no infection site on the foot. They put the substance under a slide to examine under a microscope, and the substance appears to be yogurt. I also just want to know how often they get yogurt, because it was two seconds under the slide, and he's like, yep, Greek yogurt. He's like, yes, this is yogurt. This is yogurt. I've seen this before. Does he like look at his lunch a lot under the microscope? Because he was... He was on it. They are then super brave and they smell the slide and it smells of cilantro. So it's most likely tzatziki sauce. That's not something that would be my first thought to smell the slide. I know. But he he knows his yogurt, apparently, on a microscopic level. He was confident <laughs> that it wouldn't smell too bad. <laughs> So there was a Greek restaurant two blocks from the crime scene and Dunlap went there to investigate. Hunt walks in and tells the team that her daughter is coming in today to do her video of her school project and that she's going to interview everyone to get a better sense of the work that goes on in the office. Hunt tells the team to be on their best behavior and to hide the gory stuff, which, in all fairness, is kind of hard to do in a morgue. Talking from experience, yes. <laughs> the whole job is just gore. The team has gone to an alley to search several trash cans in hope of finding other dismembered body parts. They end up finding a bag containing two more body parts, a knee and a thigh. The knee has a scar on it and it's either from an ACL reconstruction surgery or from a knee replacement surgery. There are also well-heeled scars on the thigh. 
One of the texts comes back with the news that the scar is, in fact, from a knee replacement surgery because they opened the knee and were able to find the replacement hardware, which had serial numbers. Yet another green flag, because this is something that is actually done in order to ID an unidentified victim. We've talked about this before, but all hardware and implants have unique serial numbers, and they belong to a specific company and to a specific person, so they can really help in identifying unknown people. So Dunlap tracked the serial number and got an ID for the body. The knee surgery took place one year ago, and the replacement did belong to Cal. Now they have a positive ID on the victim. They go to interview his daughter. Another red flag, though, because once again, this is not really part of the medical examiner's job description. She wouldn't be going to interview a family member during the investigation. Again, this would be the job of a medical legal death investigator, detective, or a police officer. The daughter explains that the scars and the broken bones came from Cal's various construction jobs. She had not spoken to her father in a year because he didn't get along with her husband. Hunt's daughter is at the medical examiner's office for her shadowing day. And for her videoing the office, I'm going to have to give this a red flag because this just violates HIPAA and just so many other office policies. In our office, no one is allowed to take any pictures or videos of cases because we want to keep the individual's identities private and the information in our office is only shared with people who need to know. So Hunt goes on to say that she doesn't want Lacey filming because the bodies in the morgue deserve respect, which 100% they do. She interviews Murphy and videos their session. Lacey tried to get Murphy to show her a dead body, but she doesn't go against the rules set by Hunt. The interview is done and Murphy finds Hunt to see if she has come up with anything more for the dismembered body. Hunt says that the body appeared to be frozen. Dunlap goes to Cal's apartment to investigate further. There are no signs of struggle there, but Dunlap gets a call from Hunt telling him to check the freezer. He does and sees several bags of body parts wrapped up and stuffed in the freezer. These parts have to be the rest of Cal. Hunt arrives at the apartment and is told that all of the parts are accounted for except the head. She is escorted to the bathroom of the apartment, the location where the body was cut up. The killer cleaned up very nicely, it seems, but when a crime scene tech uses blue light on the bathtub, it lights up. So red flag here because in reality that really can't happen. Blood itself doesn't fluoresce by applying UV or visible blue light. Blood, even in minuscule quantities that remain after cleanup, can be made to luminesce, that is, but you have to spray certain chemicals such as luminol or blue star on the various surfaces. So the blood will luminesce or simply glow in the dark, but adding blue light is not necessary. Although blood does not fluoresce, certain other physiological fluids will. UV alternate light sources can reveal the following, including seminal fluid, saliva, and urine stains. There's also some narcotics that can fluoresce, and other bone and teeth fragments will also fluoresce under these alternate light sources. Oh, I didn't know narcotics would fluoresce. Interesting. Yeah, I don't exactly know what chemical it is that makes up the narcotic. Chemists. But I guess whatever that certain chemical is, that fluoresces under the UV light. That's interesting. The bathtub lights up under blue light, and the detectives order that the pipes be taken apart for inspection. They take apart the pipes and the rest of the apartment, but they can't find the missing head or the casino money. They did find a blue contact lens in the sink, though, but Cal has two arthritic hands, so he wouldn't be able to put in contacts. So the question is, who does this lens belong to? 
There's a picture of Cal's daughter with brown eyes, but when Dunlap interviewed her this morning, her eyes were blue. So they go to her home again, and they hear arguing from inside. When they go in, on the kitchen table is the missing casino money. Back at the morgue, they have all the parts and containers and are examining each one. Hunt orders toxicology to be run on the tissue to see what medications the man was on since he had a history of arthritis and knee surgery. The killer knew human anatomy. The cuts were clean, and the curve marks at the separation points are consistent. They think they used a hacksaw to dismember the body. Based on the cut angles, the killer must have been right-handed, so he would have had to hold the body part in the left hand while sawing with his right. They check for residue to the left of every cut point on the parts. One of the doctors pulls out a magnifying glass and sees residue above the wrist. There are two smudges of dark powder and fine residue. We know someone grabbed Cal's arm before pulling him into the car that night at the casino, so this could be transfer from the killer. So I give a green flag here because they're talking about Locard's exchange principle. So in forensic science, Locard's principle holds that whenever there's contact between two objects, whether they're living or not, there is transfer of material between them. It's therefore the responsibility of forensic experts to find that transfer for evidence, however difficult it may be to locate. Cal's daughter is being interviewed at the station, and she said that her father had called her and said that he had some money he wanted to give her. She and her husband had paid for his knee surgery, and she thought it was the money to pay them back. Cal had given her the money, though, to pursue her dreams of going to art school that she had given up when she married her husband, Dean. So Dean didn't know anything about the money. Back in the morgue, Dr. Hunt finds out that Ethan had told Lacey about the case that they were working on, and about the dismembered body parts, and she obviously wasn't pleased, because neither are we. This is a red flag. You shouldn't be talking about an open murder investigation, especially with a 12-year-old with a video camera in the morgue. That definitely violates (laughs) all of HIPAA and every other policy. I know! Just red flag city. So, Ethan ends up finding something mixed in with a blood clot that was in one of the pulmonary arteries, and he sets it aside in a Petri dish. And Dr. Hunt takes it to examine. While Lacey is interviewing another doctor who is also working on the case, he says he found cigarette ash above the wrist. These people just love telling this 12-year-old I think we need to refer back to the Code of Ethics here. This investigation. (laughs) I just want to tell her everything she wants to know. So they tie the cigarette ash back to Mr. Ling, a neighbor of Cal's who had recently struggled to quit smoking. And it appears that he is the one who took Cal to the casino that night. The detective goes to question him and mentions that they had run into his full-time nanny that his wife and him had hired, but plot twist, he says that they don't have a nanny. So still at the morgue, Dr. Hunt is telling Lacey to imagine that your hand is the only thing left behind of you and what it would say about you. She then explains that her job as a medical examiner is to take things like tissue and hands and to figure out the story of the whole person and to do right by that person. It's actually like a really beautiful moment in the show, I thought. So while talking to Lacey, Dr. Hunt realizes what the mysterious tissue in Cal's pulmonary artery might be. So eventually cause of death for Cal is ruled to be blunt force trauma to the head, even though they still don't have his head. Uh, They can determine this ruling from the mysterious tissue found in the pulmonary artery, which ended up being brain tissue. Dr. Hunt theorized that he was struck in the head so hard that it broke his skull which lacerated his venous sinus, which is a dural sinus at the back of your head that drains venous blood from your cranial cavity. And this allowed a tiny fragment of brain tissue to go through the blood through the superior vena cava, which pumped into the heart and then into the pulmonary artery. They learned Cal was paying someone to give him injections of methotrexate since he was unable to inject himself because of his rheumatoid arthritis. Methotrexate is a chemotherapy drug, but it is also used to treat rheumatoid arthritis. They find out that the Lang's quote-unquote nanny was a former surgical nurse 
nurse and that when the detectives initially interviewed her, she said she was a nanny for the Lings, but in reality, she was Cal's caretaker. So, of course, they bring her in for investigation. And Dr. Hunt goes in to interrogate her, but red flag here because, again, the doctor isn't the one that would be interrogating a murder suspect. The detective tosses a bagged hacksaw on the table, saying they found it in the trunk of Irina, the fake nanny's car. The blade of the saw was the same blade that was used to chop up Cal. Irina claims that she didn't kill Cal because he treated her very nicely, paid her well, and he promised that he would help bring her son to the U.S. She said she came to check on him and found him already dead in the bathroom, and it looked like he had slipped, fell, and hit his head. She cut him up because he died before writing the last immigration letter to save her and her son, so she forged the letter and hid Cal's body. Hunt says she doesn't agree with Irina's choice because Dr. Hunt believes that all of the dead deserve dignity. However, she says she believes that Irina didn't kill Cal, so she needs to know where Irina disposed of his head to prove that she really didn't kill him. So Irina takes them to the dumpster where she disposed of his head. They find a fracture at the base of the skull where he did in fact hit his head when he fell, but they also find a second, deeper fracture under the hair that appears to be the actual fatal blow. Hunt's first guess is that the mark was made with the head of a hammer, and there was particulate matter in the wound, and they start running a trace on it. They go back to the scene to recreate how Cal was struck, and they find a mark on the wall of the bathroom, and it's high up almost near like the top of the door from the killer swinging so far back with the weapon. Irina was not tall enough to leave a mark that high on the wall, so it had to be from someone much taller than Irina. The person that they're looking for is somewhere around six feet tall. Hunt gets a call from the lab saying that they found various metal compounds in the wound, including brass and copper, most likely from nails, and fibers made from synthetic stone. The synthetic stone is called rock wool, and it's being used for soundproofing. They tie this to the landlord of the building, who had been soundproofing the Ling's apartment with the same rock wool substance. And even though he got rid of the weapon, he had still had the same metal compounds in his toolbox. Cal's apartment was under rent control, and this was the one thing standing in the way of the landlord turning the building into luxury condos. So he killed Cal and left his body in the bathtub for someone else to find. This episode ends with Lacey's school video project and it really brings light on what we and everybody else do in this job every day. Every person has something to teach us and we never stop learning. We do a lot of different things in our office, but we all have the same goal to find out what happened. We are just one piece of the puzzle, but an important piece to help shed light on someone's life after their death. So we give a huge green flag for that. This episode revolving around a dismembered body found in the freezer made us think of a case that actually happened quite recently. Julia Dardar was reported missing to the New Orleans Police Department on December 23, 2021 by her ex-husband, Micah Dardar, who claimed she was suffering from addiction and mental health issues. In a missing person statement made by Micah, he said that his estranged wife was missing from New Orleans. The 36-year-old female was staying with a man named Benjamin Beale, age 34, at his home. Micah was informed by a third party on December 20th that Julia was missing from the man's home in the previous days. He called for a welfare check on December 23rd. Police found her abandoned car at his home. Beale said that he last saw Dardar on December 12th. A GoFundMe page that generated over $1,000 in donations under Julia's name described how she had helped a friend repair a bus that a friend had inherited. And now she was stuck on the West Coast with no funds to get home to New Orleans. 
where she hoped to see her daughter receive a diploma. She said, I am 800 miles from home in California. She said she needed fuel, food, and shelter, and she's been sleeping in her car, hitting up food banks in order to get by, and that her back is screwed up from failed epidurals, and it's not the most comfortable place to sleep in. So Beale must have reached out to help her, and there were two buses reportedly parked at his house. There was a blue bus where police reportedly found a body that was in the backyard. Another bus was parked outside next to the tan house. The vehicle was backed into the driveway and had a red reptilian-like eye painted above the windshield. Officers got a warrant to search Beale's home, and Beale was arrested Tuesday, January 11th, 2022 when officers found a headless human torso in the bus's freezer in the backyard of Beale's home. Authorities couldn't immediately identify the body of the person whose torso it was, and they were awaiting an autopsy to determine how the person had been killed. Beale was taken to police headquarters for questioning, but he refused to give a statement. According to a court affidavit, Beale told police that he and Darter were having relationship problems, and he had allowed the NOPD to conduct a search of his property, and that's when they found the freezer inside the school bus turned mobile art project which contained the female remains. Court documents said that the reciprocating saw was found inside the freezer along with flesh and fluid from the victim's head and torso. Deep cuts were found on the shoulder and the arms of the body that police say were inflicted post-mortem. The head was chopped off and many of the body parts were wrapped in plastic. The body was identified as Julia Dardar. According to the coroner, Dardar's preliminary autopsy showed that a cause of death was blunt force injuries of the head and neck with asphyxia due to manual strangulation. Police say they also found a face shield, goggles, and garbage bags beside the freezer. Investigators traced the items to a purchase Beal made at a local hardware store on the same December day that he told the police that he last saw Dardar. Do you ever think of what the people at the hardware store think of certain people buying suspicious objects? Like, oh, you're buying a couple heck saws and ropes and plastic. I guess they sell those kinds of things to a ton of people who aren't killers, but... All these people say, like, oh, I'm doing a home project. Right? If I were the person working at the store and I found out after the fact that this guy was a killer, I would have been like, oh my god. Beale was captured on store surveillance cameras purchasing the saw and cleaning items days before Darter's estranged husband Micah reported her missing. Beale was booked that Tuesday into Orleans Parish Justice Center on several charges, including creating and operating a clandestine drug lab, illegal carrying of weapons, distribution of methamphetamine, and possession with intent to distribute marijuana. Court records show due to the dangerous conditions inside the home, detectives were unable to do a complete homicide investigation, and they called on the Louisiana State Police Narcotics Division to assist. A black safe was also found inside of Beale's home in the bedroom closet. NOPD said Beale gave over the keys to the detective, and inside they found a bifold wallet, a plush turtle purse, mushrooms, and the ID and credit card belonging to Julia Dardar. NOPD booked Beale with second-degree murder, five counts of multiple drug charges, weapons violation, and obstructing justice in a homicide case. His total bond had been set at over $1 million. Beale had reportedly pleaded not guilty and is still awaiting his final sentence. So all of the information for this case is going to be listed in our show notes if you want to read more about it. But the fact that in the show that a dismembered body was found in the freezer, I just immediately thought of a case like this because I knew that one had recently happened in the Pennsylvania area and there had to be more because I think it's like a very common thing for people to think that, oh, I'm just going to dismember a body to get rid of it and that's the best way. This case is really chilling. Don't like it. I mean, I don't like any of the murder cases that we talk about. They're all no, terrible and tragic. It. 
What is it with people, sorry, in the episode, someone found someone dead and was like, oh, I'll just dismember them and put them in the freezer. That's a fine way to deal with it. And then what was it? Episode three, when he's like, oh, I found someone I think is dead. I'm just going to put them in a sarcophagus and pretend they're a mummy. I'm going to put them in a box. What is it with people in these shows? They're like, you're not going to call the police? Like, you yeah. didn't do anything wrong. You just found the body. What is with these characters just like finding bodies and like, you know what I'm going to do? Cut them up. You know what I'm going to do? Hide it in a sarcophagus, even though I am not <laughs> guilty in this situation. I'm going to implicate myself now. <laughs> I'm going to get rid of it. So that is the end of our episode. We tallied a total of five green flags and six red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Body of Proof does not pass in terms of forensic accuracy, although they did get a lot of things right that we were surprised about. If you enjoy our podcast, share it with friends, family, and coworkers. We'd love to grow our platform here. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at InsideTheMorguePod or Twitter at InsideTheMorgue and DM us with any show suggestions. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.